So as your pastor, should I be more honest than you? Should I care about lost people more than you? Should I love people more than you? (laughs) Should I be more committed to Jesus than you are? Some of you are thinking, yeah, I hope so. I think that's what your job is. And that, my friends, is a misnomer, a misunderstanding that our Christian culture has planted into our hearts that there is somehow this division between uh, it, it is an unbiblical view. There's this division between the clergy and the laity, right? The clergy are the really, like, they're, they're the specialists, and then they have the laity somewhere. They're doing something somewhere. And uh, so most people in their mind, most Christians think, I shouldn't say most, I didn't, never did a survey, but I think a lot of Christians do. They believe that there are those regular Christians and then there's the professional, full-time experts, the, the pastors, the directors, the missionaries, the ones that really are at, the, at a whole different level. But you know what the Bible teaches? It teaches the priesthood of all believers, that the moment you cross that line of faith, you might be a rookie, but you're a minister of Jesus Christ. You're also... Uh, a full-time minister you're not a part-time minister so some might be called vocationally to uh, do ministry but we're all called to do ministry so this isn't in your notes this isn't in your notes but let me give you three passages because I want to lay I want to lay a foundation before we jump into the passage because if I don't then I think we'll read this passage as okay this is what pastors and missionaries and directors and other people are supposed to do but not me And what I want you to see is, no, this is for everyone who calls themselves a follower. So here's the point I want you to see. The first thing I want you to see is the moment that you cross the line of faith, we're called to full-time ministry. So you can answer somebody and say, are you in full-time ministry? And say, yes, I am. I'm absolutely in full-time ministry. Why? Well, number one, we're all called to be priests. We're all called to be priests. Look at... uh, uh, just write this reference down. Like I said, you don't have these, so just write the reference down. First Peter 2.5. Here's what Peter says. You all, y'all, uh, plural, are living stones, are built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering uh, spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. There's no distinction there. We're all part of ministry. Let me give you another one. Write this down. 1 Corinthians 12, 27. Y'all, you all, plural, are the body of Christ. Each one of you is a part of it. So we're all part of the body of Christ. We all need one another. We can't do without one another, right? You know, one of, some of us are hands, the feet, the eyes, the ears, the nose, whatever. And, you know, but we all, you know, I mean, I've said this before, what part of your, what member of your body would you do without? The answer is none. I want them all. I need it. I need everything I can get, let alone lose something. So we're the hands and feet of Jesus. And then number three, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors 
as though God were making us his appeal, his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So we're ambassadors for Jesus Christ. What does an ambassador do? An ambassador represents an emperor or a king or a, or, or a country, and they generally are in a foreign country representing that country. They're ambassadors for that. They represent that country, right? And he says, you, you all are ambassadors for Jesus Christ. Um, and then let me give you one more. Write this one down. Colossians 3.17. Colossians 3.17. We are all, always representing Jesus. Notice Paul says this. Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Colossians 3.17. 3.17. So here is a case to show you that there is no such thing as part-time and full-time ministry we are all part of ministry we are all ministers when you cross that line of faith you become a minister of jesus christ now with that in mind i want us to look at the passage we're going to look at this weekend but i want you to look at it with this this in mind that this doesn't just apply to an elite group or some some you know special group of people but to every follower of jesus christ Everyone who calls Jesus your Lord and Savior, okay? So let's read it with that in mind. Mark chapter 6, Mark chapter 6, and uh, if you don't have a Bible and you don't know how to find Mark, we have these chair Bibles, and on page 816, you'll find Mark 6. Now, maybe you're here and you think the people around you are all Bible geniuses. That's adorable. They're not. And many people don't know how to find their ways uh, through the Bible, and that's okay. That's why we put the page, we give you the page numbers, and we tell you where to look. So Mark chapter 6, I'm going to read the first 13 verses. I'm going to start at uh, verse 1, page 816. But let's read it with what's in mind was that this applies to every follower of Jesus Christ, not just some. Don't check out here. Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that has been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he's performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? For some of you, that's a shock. You didn't realize Jesus had siblings. Well, he did. Brothers and sisters. But notice the next line. They aren't just asking these questions. They're upset. They're offended. And they took offense at him. Jesus said to him, A prophet is not without honor except in his own town among his relatives and in his hometown. He could not do any miracles there except lay hands on a few sick people and heal them. The question has been asked, why? Why couldn't Jesus heal people? Because the people around him didn't have any faith in him. We looked last week and we talked about the crowds that were all around him. Only two people got healed. Those were the only two people that really showed faith in Jesus. And then it goes on. Notice what it says. He was amazed at their lack of faith. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village, calling the twelve to him. He began to send them out two by two, and he gave them authority over impure spirits. These were his instructions. 
By the way, these are our marching notes today. Take nothing for your journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. Some of you are saying, but I don't have sandals. Okay, just don't take, just relax. We'll, we'll, get, we'll cover it. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if the place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. So here's five things that we need to remember if we're going to be good stewards, good servants of God and good servants of Jesus Christ and share the good news in in a powerful way. First one is this. Let people be offended by the message, not the messenger. Jesus comes to his hometown and they're automatic, they're quickly say, well, it couldn't be him. There's no way. This is not, this is, he should not, where did he get his teaching? How is he doing these miracles? Who is, what's going on here? Uh, If we carefully communicate the gospel, we're going to offend people. But let's make sure that they're offended with the gospel and not because of our words or behavior. And that's very important that we understand that. Now, why is the gospel offensive to some people? Many people, really. Well, it's got, the gospel is offensive to people who are traditional, people who, who have high morals. They believe that, that, that morality and being a good person is important uh, because what it does is the gospel puts people who are morally good and people who are morally bad on the same level. How does it do that? It says that we're all sinners. The Bible says we all sin. We all fall short of the glory of God. No, I don't like that. I don't feel like I'm a big sinner. I may be a little minor sinner, but I'm not a big sinner. Don't put me at that person. So a moral person would take offense with the gospel and say, hey, wait a minute. I may not, might, be, might not be perfect, but I'm certainly not there. And that's what morality when you, you make morality your thing, you basically compare yourselves to other people and you are always tr- you'd always turn out to be kind of like a Pharisee. But then there's, there's, there's other people. And, and these people are what, what I would call, the best way to describe them is, I call them liberal and secular. And this is the belief in our culture that says, you know, it doesn't really matter what path you choose. It doesn't really matter what you believe. Um, each person can find their own God. And Jesus comes along and says, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Well, that's pretty exclusive. That's pretty divisive. That's pretty offensive. So the point is, it doesn't matter whether you're a, a really moral person or whether you're a, a fairly liberal person and uh, it, it's offensive to both, both sides because it, it offends them in different ways. One says, you think you're okay, but you're still a sinner. And you are just as condemned as somebody who you think is really bad. You're all condemned. The other one is, there's only one way. There's not a lot of ways. And that's offensive. So the gospel in and of itself is offensive when you share it to people. They will struggle with it. When they, if they're truly understanding the gospel, they're not going to like it. It's going to bother them. They're going to have issues with it. That's the point. 
So if we accurately carry the gospel message, we will be offensive to all people. Jesus said in his Sermon on the the Mount, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. So Jesus already set it up. He says, if you are living your life the way you should, and if you're sharing the gospel the way you should, people are going to be upset with you. They're going to be offended by you. Some of you have family members, and you really haven't changed your behavior that much other than you love Jesus. And they kind of caught on with that, but it doesn't fit with the tradition you were raised. And they kind of give you this, oh, it's little Miss Goody Choo Shoes. You just think you're so righteous and so good. You haven't said a word. Where'd that come from? But notice what it doesn't say. Jesus doesn't say, he says, blessed are those uh, who are persecuted for righteousness sake. It doesn't say, blessed are those who are persecuted for obnoxiousness. (laughs) Right? If you're obnoxious, if you're abrasive, if you're majoring on minors, fighting over everything, acting like a victim all the time, being unwise in how you speak, you'll be offensive and not really attractive. But that's not due to the gospel. That's on you. Now, here's the, key, here's the thing. There's a balance here. We know that there's going to be an offense, uh, offense uh, uh, disliking to the message of the gospel. And that's the message. So we, we, we go, okay, well, there, we shouldn't try to make the message more acceptable. Take the edges off of it. We got to let the gospel be the gospel and let people be offended for that. But let's not us be the reason why people are offended by our behavior, by our words. Here's the point. If you find yourselves always being offensive or never being offensive, if you find yourself being attractive but, ne- but not being offensive or offensive and not being tra- attractive, there's something wrong with how you're sharing the gospel. There are going to be times when people are going to be offended with you because of your message. But if they're offended because of, not because of your message, but because of you, well, then it's a problem. Let me read that one more time. If you find yourself always being offensive or never being offensive, if you find yourself being attractive but not being offensive or, uh, but not being Uh, offensive or offensive but attractive there's something wrong in how you're sharing the gospel there's a point where you're going to be offensive because of the message but you shouldn't be offensive because of who you are and how you're living your life and your words and your bad behavior allow people to be offended by the message of the gospel but make sure that you are not the reason they are offended because of your bad behavior all right that's the first point second point is this You need to get out of the holy huddle and get in the game. Too many Christians are in the huddle. Jesus instructed his disciples to depend on the hospitality of the community. Why did he do that? Why did he say, find a house and stay there, hang out with these folks, get to know them, spend time with them, do life with them? He wanted them to get out of the holy huddle, to serve uh, the people. Jesus wanted them to rub shoulders. Holy huddles are usually not very healthy. Here's a few things that I've found that happens within holy huddles. Some bad ideas have been born from holy huddles. Here's three. Let me give you three. Here's the first one. People who don't love Jesus are our enemies. That's a holy huddle idea. 
people who don't love Jesus are our enemies. The fact is, this is a bad idea. It's unbiblical, and it's taking off online on an alarming way. People are writing stuff online like this other person is the enemy. Our goal is not to wipe out our enemies. Our goal is to win them over. Are we really okay with paving the highway to hell for people? Is that what we really want to do? We want to win an argument? We want to straighten them out? But what we're doing is we're paving a highway to hell for them, and we're okay with it. God isn't. Look at what he says in Ezekiel. Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the sovereign Lord? Rather, I am not pleased when they turn, uh, rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? You see what God is saying there? I don't take joy when the wicked perish. I love it when they repent. So that's a bad idea, and that comes from holy huddles. They're the enemy. They're the enemy. Um, here's another one that's close to that. We need to, win our, we need to win the culture war. In other words, we need to impose our Christian values on our culture. We need to, to make, America, make, make America a Christian nation again. Now, even if you accept that at one time America was a Christian nation is no longer, no longer is, so what? So what if America is a Christian nation? I mean, really, so what if you win the culture war? What if we could get people to accept and live according to Christian values? What difference does it make in people's lives for eternity? They check all the right boxes. They say all the right things. They watch their language. They behave. And and, and maybe life is nicer now. But in the end, for eternity, what difference does it make? This is what Jesus said. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? And what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? And Jesus always played the long game. He always said, you know what? What people believe and what people think here and now is important, but it's not as important as what they think about Jesus, what they know about Jesus, where they're going to spend eternity. We could try to win a culture war here if you want, but in the end, the culture war is going to be won. Here's where the culture war is going to be won. The day that Jesus Christ comes to earth and reigns as king and lord and ruler of his universe and of his planet. That's the day. Here's the point. Don't get sidetracked. Keep the main thing front and center. In the end, a person's political views, their sexual preference... Their sports affiliations are not the issue. Where they're spending eternity is. And too many Christians are caught up in all these peripheral issues saying, we've got to get this person straightened out. We've got to fix their view here. We've got to do this. And all, and all I'm going to say is, what's that mean? In the end, if they don't know Jesus, it's over. Let me give you another one. We need to shelter ourselves from the world. 
It says in the passage, he began to send them out. He does this a lot with his disciples. First, he sends them two by two. And before you get all caught up in the methodology of how he's doing it, that they took certain things and they did it a certain way, don't get caught up in that. Just understand that he's sending them out. He's sending the 12 out two by two. By the way, one of the people he sent out there that was performing miracles was Judas. Probably Judas was performing miracles. So that's a whole thing you can chew on for a moment. Um, so he sends the 12 out, he sends the 72 out, and then on the, on, on, in Acts you see him sending the 144 out. So it's different numbers and different times. But he is on a, on a regular basis sending them out. They're not staying in a holy huddle, they're going out. They're doing ministry. Now we often think that um, godliness is best demonstrated in a sheltered life. And, and, and in church history, you read about those monks and the hermits, you know, the guys that would sit on poles or dwell in caves or, or go to a monastery and be quiet, quiet and silent and not speak for the rest of their lives as something that was virtuous. Um, God never called a person to crawl into a sheltered life to become a monk or a hermit. In fact, he called us exactly the opposite. Where this idea came that this was a good idea to go to a cave or to go to some area and just hang out together and be quiet and silent, where that came out to be a virtuous thing, I don't know, but I don't see it in Scripture. I see it in church history. I get it. And I know there are people who say, well, you learn to meditate, learn to be silent before God. I get all that. That's not what we're talking about. What does Jesus say? Jesus said we're called to be salt and light. In Matthew chapter 5, he says, You are the, salt, the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. So Jesus gives the illustration. Don't hide a lamp. Let it shine, right? And then he applies it in the same way let your light shine before others. How do you do that if you're a hermit? How do you do that when you're in a holy huddle? How do you do that? How do you influence people who are lost and headed for an eternal destruction when you never engage? How do you do that? Jesus says, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and not glorify you and not say, what a great person, but glorify your Father in heaven. That's what we're called to do. Now, we all have a, what I call a sphere of influence. If you have, you know, married, you have, a, you know, spouse, you have kids, you, uh, you have a mom, you have a dad, you have aunts and uncles. They may be living in the area. You have friends, you have neighbors, you have co-workers. That's your sphere of influence. They're watching you. They're learning. They're understanding who you are. They're picking up those clues that you lay down. And, and so my question is, are you allowing the gospel to impact all areas of your life? I mean, you put on your Christian dress on, on the weekend and then go off and live like hell the rest of the week. I mean, come on. If you're a minister of Jesus Christ, it's not a part-time position. It's a full-time position. You are always a minister all the time. And that leads me to the first question I ask you. Should I be more righteous to you? Should I care about the poor more than you? Should I love people more than you? And the answer is No. <laughs> But here's the point. There's no impact without contact. 
All right, number three. Be ready for open door opportunities. Be ready for open door opportunities. If you're committed to sharing the good news, you'll realize some doors are going to remain closed while others will open up. And so you need to be ready. You need to be prepared when a door opens up. And simply, that could be as simple as somebody says something like, what did you do this weekend? (laughs) Right? Or it could be, hey, I know you go to this church. What do you believe? And that's an open door. But sometimes the door is closed and, and you're free to walk away. Don't be a pest for Jesus. Don't get in people's faces. I know there are people that get on subways and they preach to people and they get on street corners and they yell. You know what? God bless you. But frankly, I don't know if, you know, I mean, God can use those methods, but I think what I've seen God use is friendships and relationships. That's what I, that's how he did it in the early church. My goal, here's what my goal is when I meet people that I don't know, and I don't know where they're at with God, with Jesus. My goal is maybe to be the first Christian they ever met that they can't just characterize they can't make a caricature out of them. They can't make fun of them. They can't say they're an idiot. They have no, they, they're not really very thoughtful. They, they're kind of like, you know, flighty. They're, they're hypocritical. Maybe, maybe the one thing they'll say is this is the first real person I've ever met that's making me wrestle that not complete idiots are Christians. Be the first Christian that they have met that isn't weird, strange, or odd. And then Jesus tells them something very interesting. You read this in the passage, right? He says, shake off the dust. Now, what does that mean when he says, shake off the dust? It simply means this. This was an Eastern, uh, an ancient Near Eastern way of saying, you are now responsible for what I've shared with you about Jesus. I've given you the gospel information and now you're responsible. It's no longer on me anymore. I've shared what I can share, now I'm going to walk away. And I'm not going to feel bad, and I'm not going to feel guilty. If you ever want to talk again, now you don't say this out loud, but I mean, essentially, that's what it meant. It meant there is a point where you say, hey, uh, the, the fruit isn't ripe, move to another orchard. But you've done your job, you've, you've checked to see whether there's any fruit to be picked, and if there's not, you move on, and you don't feel bad about it. Here's number four. The good news must be accompanied by good deeds. The good news must be accompanied by good deeds. Um, Serving others really opens doors to sharing the good news, the main thing. Look at the activities of the disciples. Look at what they're doing. They're healing the sick. They're casting out demons. They're not just sharing information. They're serving people in their time of the greatest need. They're, They're freeing kids, little, little kids and other people who are demon-possessed. They're healing people who are sick. They're helping the poor. They're doing good deeds. Christians were the most exclusive-sounding people, because the gospel is divisive in the first century, but they were also the most inclusive-acting people they had ever seen. I want to read you a testimony of a church father as he's describing the attractiveness of Christians and Christianity. And, and, and um, let me read just a, a little bit of it. Here's what he says. 
Most of our brother Christians showed unbound love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. And with them departed this life serenely happy. In other words, some of them died taking care of people and caught diseases and died. Many in nursing and cursing uh, others transferred their death to themselves and died in their steed. The best of our brothers lost their lives in this manner. The heathen behaved in the very opposite way. At the first onset of disease, they pushed the sufferers away and fled from their dearest, throwing them into the roads before they were dead and treated them uh, un- treated unburied, uh, treated them as unburied corpses, as dirt, hoping, therefore, to avert the spread and contagion of fatal disease. In other words, what this, this early father was saying, Christians ran into the building while the others were fleeing. They didn't just go around talking. They went around acting and serving. Ministers of Jesus are servants. They are meeting the needs of hurting people. Here's here's the thing you have to hear. Words without deeds have no credibility, but deeds without words have no eternal significance. Let me say that one more time. Words without deeds have no credibility, but deeds without words have no eternal significance. We have to do both, folks. We have to do both. Well, here's three things that will help you be a better witness of the gospel. Number one, answer those who ask you. This is what Peter says. In your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. It is never through arguments. You will never win an argument. You'll never argue somebody into heaven. It'll never happen. It'll never happen. In fact, you may push them further away. You may close a door that might have been opened had you just been quiet. What I call them is elevator speeches. You need to have an elevator speech. When somebody asks you about the hope that you have, something about your life, you be ready with about a one-minute quick thing telling them about what Jesus has done in your life and what your belief is about Jesus and how you love him. You, you have that ready. You, you have it rehearsed. So you, it just, boom, you, you, you can do it. And it's your speech. It's not somebody else's speech. And that's the third point. Give your own answer, not somebody else's. You don't have to memorize a track and say, okay, point one, you are this, point two. No, don't do that. You, I mean, you can use that if you want, but the better way is to share your own testimony. And one of the phrases you hear me say all the time is, I am just a beggar who found bread. Let me show you the bread of life. Let me tell you about the bread of life. If you're hungry, if, if you're thirsty, let me show you the one who gives living water. <laughs> That's it. That's all I am. I'm just, I, I'm just like, hey, you know, come and see, right? That's really what it is. Let me give you one more. So answer those before, be ready to answer those who ask you. And then give your own answer, not someone else's. And then number three, Listen before you answer. I think one of the, th- the things that Christians are the worst at is we don't listen to people. 
We don't hear them. We don't feel their pain. We don't understand the bondage they're under and how they're, what they're going through. Proverbs says this, to answer before listening, that is folly and shame. To answer before listening, that is folly and shame. One last point. Leave the results to God. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 6 through 8. 1 Corinthians 3, 6 through 8. Just write that down. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their labor. And the one purpose is to help that person cross the line and grow. So I don't know, you know, it's nice to know that when you come into a relationship with a person is to listen, find out where they're at spiritually, find out what their beliefs are, find out what, what's going on in their life. And it may be that what you're going to do is you're going to plant a seed. It may be you're going to break up some hard ground. It may be you're going to water a seed. It may be that you're going to help them cross that line of faith. But your job isn't do everything. <laughs> your job is just maybe to do one part of that. You know, I've had relationships, and you have, and some have in your own life, where they have been there for a period of time. It's like your, 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 your orbits kind of join for a period of time where seeds are planted, hard ground is broken up, your seed is watered. Maybe they cro- you help cross, and then they go somewhere else. And, and it's God bringing those people into your life, and you being that person that God is going to bring into someone else's life, those, with those, with those, uh, those orbits come into contact. Uh, Proverbs says this, There's no wisdom, no insight, no plan that can succeed against the Lord. The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but victory lies in the Lord. And so what I'm giving you is a game plan. I'm telling you as a follower of Jesus Christ, here's the game plan. You, we're all ministers. We all have a responsibility. We all have a sphere of influence. We need to be ready to share in respect and we need to be listeners, and we need to be ready to share whatever God wants us to share. We understand the gospel is offensive, but let's not be offensive, right? But that, knowing all of that, the writer of Proverbs says the same thing that Paul says. In the end, we prepare the horse, but God gives a victory. God is sovereign. I want to close with just one one idea. We began the pa- passage where it talked about his hometown rejected him. His hometown. These, these people grew up with him. His friends, his neighbors. They knew, his, he, they knew Mary. They knew his brothers and sisters. They knew Jesus. And they make a reference. It's kind of this, it's kind of a subtle reference. They say, isn't this the carpenter? Don't we know his brothers and sisters? Isn't his mother Mary? Well, this would be, this would be a slam on him. Because essentially what they're saying is it was always, in that culture, was always proper that you would say, Jesus is the son of Joseph. You would say that. That's essentially what you would say. That you would name the son under the father, not under the mother. You wouldn't do that in that day. So what they're doing here is they're essentially saying, he doesn't even know who his father is. His own father has forsaken him. We know Joseph wasn't his real father. He's a phony. He's a fake. He 
He does, he's illegitimate even in his very birth, rejected by his own father. And on the cross, that's exactly what happened. When Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken by his father so that we could be accepted. He took our sin so that we could be forgiven. He gave his life so that we could live. That's the gospel. We're sinners under the wrath of God. He took the wrath. He took the punishment we deserve. And he gave his life so that we could live. That's the gospel message. That's the message the world has to hear. And the only way they're going to hear it is from me, from you. All of us are ministers with a message that will change people's lives for eternity. Pray with me. Help us, Father, because without your help, we can't do this. Without your Holy Spirit, we'll make a mess of it. Help us to maybe do some damage control for things we've said or things that we've done. Maybe we need to go to people and apologize or repent because we have, we have been offensive. We have been mean-spirited. We have been judgmental, hypocritical, whatever we want to say. We need to pick up those pieces and, and do some damage control. We need to show some humility, brokenness. For those that may be here, Father, that have never crossed that line of faith, it's pretty simple. Whoever calls in the name of the Lord shall be saved. And tonight could be a night where somebody watching this video just pray, Jesus, I realize you gave your life for me. And you died on the cross for my sins. You took the wrath I deserved. And now I give my life to you. And I want to call you Savior and Lord. I want to follow you. You gave your life to me. And now I give my life to you. And Father, somebody prayed that prayer. I pray they let somebody know. So they can walk with them. And help them. For the rest of us, Father, we pray to prayer like that. Help us to get in the game, get out of the huddle. Help us to take our role as ministers seriously. Use us this week for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.